0: from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. Welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are bringing you an episode from a really amazing project called Feet in Two Worlds, and its series, Immigrants in a Divided Country. The series explores our current political landscape and political polarization through the perspective of immigrants. And in this episode in particular, it's an audio essay from producer Bowen Wong, who really works through some of these issues about political divides and finding common ground and bridging divides through the lens of his relationship with his mom, who is an immigrant from China. And they explore the concept of brainwashing and how we can unwash our brains uh, and really try to bridge some of those divides. So I think the lessons in this story, what Bowen and his mother go through, are really applicable for anyone who is doing bridging work or just interested in doing what we can to reduce polarization and find some common ground in America. So without further ado, here's the episode, How to Wash Your Brain from Feet into Worlds, Immigrants in a Divided Country. I hope you enjoy it.
1: Across the political, cultural, and generational divisions in the US, there's one thing that all sides seem to agree on. The other side, whoever that is, has been brainwashed.
2: So we try
1: to persuade you but what we
2: were thinking about is objective. However, you think we are brainwashed. So we end up thinking both of us being brainwashed. We need to probably wash again so
1: we have a normal brain. From Feeding Two Worlds, this is a better life. I'm Virginia Lora. Almost every headline in the news these days is a glaring reminder of the nation's deep political divisions. Gun control, voting rights, abortion, police violence, climate change, economic policy, immigration. These are all issues where there seems to be little consensus. Through a new multimedia series, Immigrants in a Divided Country, Feeding Two Worlds is exploring how specific issues and events, as well as the national mood, are changing how immigrants view themselves, their communities, the nation, and the world. On this special edition of A Better Life, we bring you one of these stories. When we call someone brainwashed, what exactly are we saying? What does the term actually mean? And how accurate or helpful is it? Writer and audio producer Boing Wong went looking for answers. He talked to his mom, an immigrant from mainland China, about her views on the term and her political beliefs. The conversation prompted Bowen to reflect on his own political transformation and on whether it's possible for two people on opposite sides of nearly every divide to move beyond their mutual accusations of brainwashing and find something resembling common ground. Here's Bowen.
3: My mom thinks I'm brainwashed by the New York Times. I think she's brainwashed by the Chinese Communist Party.
1: What you
2: read, what you hear from medium is... uh... It's this place. It's from this place, and once you hear many times, then you believe what they said is right, and uh, like New York Times, and uh, like CNN, you know, whatever they say. I don't
3: really watch CNN though. I know, I just, I, but okay. people have. I do read the New York Times.
2: Yeah, New York Times is fake news. That's for sure. Yeah.
3: We disagree on pretty much everything when it comes to politics, both in China and the U.S. I think Taiwan should be an independent nation, and she thinks it's a province of China.
2: I do feel that Taiwan, I would say China is part of China, and I stand on that point.
3: I supported the Hong Kong protests, and she thinks they are orchestrated by outsiders.
2: And what happened in Hong Kong, you will find out it's not just local people are not happy with the situation. There are a lot of things behind the scenes.
3: I voted one way in the 2016 election, And she voted the other way.
2: He's not a good person, and Hillary is even worse. So between these two people, I pick up the better worse. Let me put it in that way.
3: You get the point. I'm sure you're familiar with this story. Parents and their kids on opposite sides of the political spectrum. Like a lot of us, my mom and I avoid topics that'll just cause an argument and leave both of us upset. If there's one thing we can agree on, it's that the other person has been brainwashed.
2: So we try to persuade you that what we were thinking about is objective. However, you think we are brainwashed. So we end up thinking both of us being brainwashed. We need to probably wash again so we have a normal brain.
3: To figure out who's really brainwashed, I decided to finally sit down and just ask my mom about her life and how her political beliefs evolved. Maybe I can figure out if there's anything we actually agree on, or at least try to make sense of what we believe and why. Maybe it's possible, as my mom puts it, to go back to having a normal brain, if that even exists. And come to think of it, maybe it helped to understand where brainwashing even comes from.
1: I would like to have you give me very simply, if it is possible, the techniques.
3: This is an undated interview from a radio station in Cleveland. The Bay of Pigs is mentioned, so it's probably sometime in the mid 60s. And this. A brainwashing? Of what we call brainwashing?
1: Brainwashing consists of two processes.
3: Is Edward Hunter.
1: One process is softening up, the other process is indoctrination.
0: Softening up is what mainly took place in the prisoner of war camps in Korea and softening up is what is taking place in the United States today."
3: Hunter wrote for publications like the New York Post and Newark Ledger. He was a journalist and also a CIA agent. The story goes that after the Communist Party takes over China in 1949, Hunter is there, interviewing refugees trying to flee the country, and he learns about this term he's never heard before. Xi now. Xi now. Chinese for wash brain. Xi now. Xi, as in to clean, to wash, to bathe, and now, as in mind, head, brain. And according to Hunter, this process is a mass conspiracy of remolding people into communist slaves, basically. That's Ryan Mitchell, a law professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. He studied the etymology of brainwash and discovered that the term didn't originate in 1949. It's actually from decades earlier. It's introduced during this brief phase in the 1890s where the traditional political system is still going very strong. The last empire, the Qing Dynasty, was slowly dying. As the empire buckled under the weight of political and cultural inertia, Chinese intellectuals and reformers looked outward, to the West in Japan. They argued that the only way to save China was to embrace modern, Western politics and philosophy and science. So these intellectuals came up with a new term, siinao, brainwash. And to them, brainwashing was actually a good thing.
1: The idea of starting afresh,
3: cleaning out from one's own mind all of the kind of outmoded ways of thinking or obsolete cultural beliefs and practices that don't accord with a modern scientific outlook. Creating a new modern China began at the level of the individual by personally washing away all of your tired old ways of thinking and replacing them with new Western ideas of rationality and enlightenment. Brainwashing was an act of self-improvement. And as China underwent dramatic transformations, the collapse of thousands of years of imperial rule, civil war, world war, the term's definition pretty much stayed the same. But of course, everything changed with communism. Ah,
0: the that I saw there, I now see being used against the American public here in our country.
3: Edward Hunter claims to hear this term, see and starting in 1950, he writes all these articles and books about it, how the evil Chinese communists are brainwashing people, turning them into mindless zombies who carry out the party's bidding. And according to Hunter, Americans are in danger of becoming brainwashed as well. It might sound ridiculous, but remember, this is the Cold War. The idea took root. You can see this in movies like The Manchurian Candidate, released in 1962, where an American POW is turned into a secret assassin in order to kill a presidential candidate.
2: I have conditioned them, or brainwashed them, which I understand is the new American word.
3: By the way, that movie is super racist. There are actors in yellowface who do all sorts of gross Asian stereotypes. But when I googled Manchurian candidate racist, nothing came up. I felt like a crazy person. (inaudible) 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 This is how we ended up with the definition we use today. An obscure 19th century Chinese term with positive connotations was translated into English by an American journalist slash spy and turned into something sinister. And fake, by the way. There's no evidence of any actual brainwashing in China, not the way Hunter described it. The kicker is that as Americans started hyperventilating about the specter of brainwashing, no one in China really used the term, or had even heard of it. Can you tell me when you first heard the term "Sino"?
2: I think I didn't really know about this term.
3: So if my mom wasn't brainwashed, If she hadn't even heard of this term, that isn't even real, then what was she? My mom was born in 1963 in Inner Mongolia, an autonomous region in China that borders Mongolia, the country. When I mention this, people are sometimes like, whoa, was your mom Mongolian? Did she grow up in a yurt and ride horses and milk goats? And I'm like, No, she's ethnically Chinese and grew up in a typical Chinese city with a typical Chinese education. Although the term typical is a bit fraught, like Tibet and Xinjiang, Inner Mongolia has essentially been colonized by ethnic Chinese, with Mongols now making up only 18% of the population. In school, my mom took the usual classes in math and history as well as a class in politics that's mandatory for every student in China, she listened to the politics teacher describe a global ideological conflict between two mortal enemies.
2: We are the third world, and American they are impurity, in, in,
3: imperialist.
2: Yeah, and they uh, they the American people live a horrible life. They are living in a fire and hell, those kind of things, and poor.
3: I can't help but think of American children sitting in their classrooms at the same time, learning about the suffering of poor, starving Chinese people.
2: And also we learned history about how Chinese people have been treated, like an um, OPM war. 1839 to 42.
3: Britain defeats China and takes Hong Kong.
2: And burn down the Summer Palace.
3: 1860. French and British troops invade Beijing, with the British looting and then burning down the emperor's residence.
2: Zhu you know?
3: Zhu
2: Jie. means um, a place, like in Shanghai there are a lot of Zhu uh, and you are foreigners, but you say, oh, this place is mine.
3: Foreign concessions territories that China ceded to the West.
2: So we have kind of a sense that we have been really humiliated by the West. So Chinese people feel that we want to regain our glory. So we have to work really hard so we can have an equal footing on the world stage.
3: What struck me talking to my mom was how personal this all was. China's enemies were her enemies. And China's future was her responsibility. How did you feel when you were learning about all of this?
2: I feel that I'm part of this whole process. So I want to do my best. I want to gain glory for my country.
3: This reminds me of the original positive definition of brainwashing, of renewing your mind with modern Western ideas for the betterment of China. But what my mom learned from her politics class was that instead of emulating the West, she should hate it. She didn't look forward to a better future, but instead felt anger at the past and all the things Europe and America did to humiliate her homeland. So when you were growing up, what did you think of Americans?
2: I think America is a a bad guy.
3: (laughs) I grew up in a very white, very bougie suburb of Philadelphia. My family did the classic immigrant move of buying the cheapest house in the richest neighborhood we could afford, the sort of place with three Whole Foods within a five-mile radius of my home, and parents who drove their Porsche SUVs to drop their kids off at my elementary school. At the front of the classroom was an American flag I pledged allegiance to every day. This being Philly, we learned all about the Revolutionary War, and went on field trips to Valley Forge and Independence Hall. But despite growing up in the birthplace of America, surrounded by monuments to the city's rich history, the only thing I actually remember from history class was this song that went like, Sacajawea, Indian girl, young, smart, and brave. Ah. The lyrics are about how Sacajawea assisted Lewis and Clark on their expedition. Although I don't remember learning about how at age 12, she was captured and forced into marriage with a white fur trader, and that when she joined the expedition at about 16, she was pregnant with her first child. Some other things I don't remember learning about. The Trail of Tears, or the Tulsa Massacre, or the Chinese Exclusion Act. All I remember is the chorus to that song, which you have to admit is extremely catchy. Sure. There were glancing references to slavery and Jim Crow in history class, but the overriding message was, all this stuff happened a long, long time ago and is now safely confined to kids' songs and picture books. So don't worry about it. And most importantly, don't feel bad about it. My mom had history pounded into her. She learned that the country she lived in today was the direct result of the stories from the past that she learned about. So in that sense... My mom had a better understanding of the way history works and why it matters than I did. Like me though, she doesn't remember learning about the atrocities committed by her own country, but during her own childhood, she got to witness an atrocity herself. This is a song called The Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution is Just Good. It also has an extremely catchy chorus that goes, The Cultural Revolution is just good. The Cultural Revolution is just good. The Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution is just 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 good. It's just good. It's just good. It's just good. My mom was three years old when the Cultural Revolution began in 1966. Throughout her childhood, she sat in politics class stewing in anger against China's enemies, with the portraits of five men at the front of the classroom. Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. Here he is announcing the founding of the People's Republic of China in
2: 1949. <laughs> You really love him. Yeah, you, you love him, right.
3: It might sound a bit unbelievable. How can a child love a political figure, or even understand what politics is? But for the generation who grew up during the Cultural Revolution, Mao was inescapable. My mom memorized quotations from Mao. She saw posters pasted everywhere, with his smiling, benevolent face. She sang songs about all the deeds the great helmsman did for the Chinese people. In fact, it was more than love. It was devotion.
2: You always say long, long live Chairman Mao, and you have such... You think he's like a god, he, never, he would never
3: die. You felt like he was god?
2: He is god. Yeah, I feel he is
3: god, yes. And it wasn't just my mom. During the Cultural Revolution, Maoist extremists and military officials imprisoned, publicly shamed and killed millions of people who were accused of being counter-revolutionaries. Some of these accusations were completely arbitrary, like if you wore fancy clothes or had an outlandish haircut. But some people were targeted for being too rich or too educated, or even for not being ethnically Chinese. In Inner Mongolia, the party and People's Liberation Army killed thousands of Mongols for supposedly being unloyal to China. My mom didn't witness these mass killings, but she saw plenty of struggle sessions, one of the defining features of the Cultural Revolution. They're usually held in big open spaces, like a college campus or stadium, and pretty much everyone in the neighborhood would come and watch, adults and kids alike. Then, the supposed counter-revolutionaries were paraded onto the stage, a name placard hanging around their necks The crowd would scream at them and pelt them with rocks, and someone on stage would beat them. When my mom was six, she witnessed a struggle session held in the dining hall of the factory her parents worked at.
2: And we were kids, we were in the back of the dining hall and standing on the dining table.
3: And looking over the heads of all the adults, she could see people being brought on stage.
2: They we were ah oh, 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 just feel like oh it's kind of like a party and one person goes on oh, and one person goes on oh, there's a name tag in front and people are shouting down 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 you know down 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 such and such down, down down such and such down 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 such and such
3: suddenly in the middle of this big party
2: I saw my neighbor, the kid. Jump off the table, he she just ran away. And I saw, oh, it's her dad. <laughs> Not no, 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 no. taken to the stage people. No, 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 no. So that was kind of a shocking moment. Uh, so I still remember that was like fifty years later I was still remember I just oh what horrible what horrible moment for this child. If I were that child, and it was my father, I will bury that deep in my heart and never forget.
3: To this day, my mom still thinks highly of Mao and how he unified China and ended the century of humiliation she learned about in school. But she also understands why people who are directly victimized by his policies, people like that little girl and her dad, would hate Mao, for the suffering he caused them. She empathizes with that little girl. So why does she still love him? Shouldn't seeing her personal experience make you think differently? I do
2: feel that Mao has made a lot of mistakes. He made people suffering. He made people, the life horrible, miserable, difficult. But you know, I feel history will judge a person, right? So I still feel he should judge favorably in terms of what he has done as a whole to Chinese people and as a nation.
3: If you Google cultural revolution, you'll see images that confirm the stereotype of Chinese communist brainwashing. Mao waving to adoring crowds, all of them identically dressed and holding up the little red book. But it's not that simple. There's what you're taught, in what you see with your own eyes. There's the love my mom had for a man her teachers told her was next to God. And then there's the horror my mom felt at witnessing what God could inflict upon a girl just a few years older than her. In the end, she chose love. (laughs)
1: A New York judge rejected a bid by Occupy Wall Street protesters to bring their tents and sleeping bags back to a city park. I never loved America,
3: or any of its leaders. My mom was immersed in politics basically since birth. But for me, it was all an abstraction, something I learned about from school, and read about in the New York Times. I picked up the habit in high school. My sophomore year history teacher assigned us to read the Times every night, and then quizzed us on the headlines the next day. It was 2011, an eventful year.
1: Central Cairo dissolved into open street warfare today.
3: The Arab Spring broke out in the Middle East. The U.S. bombed Libya. Protesters occupied Wall Street and cities across the country. And the president, carefully considering and managing all these issues, acknowledged that yes, America had made its share of mistakes in the past, like the genocide of indigenous people and the enslavement of black people, but that its founding ideals were pure and good and still worth fighting for.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union.
3: In retrospect, it was a more sophisticated version of what I learned in elementary school. Don't worry about it. And don't feel bad about it, or maybe feel a little bit bad, but rest assured that all these historical wrongs have been corrected.
1: What would be needed were Americans in successive generations who were willing to do their part to narrow that gap between the promise of our ideals and the reality of their time. Or
3: in the words of the following Democratic presidential nominee.
0: America is great because America
3: is good. I was a senior in college in 2016. And I was excited. It was the first presidential election I could vote in, where the first woman president would succeed the first black president. Although I did vote for Bernie in the primary, but I guess I had to choose the better-worse, as my mom put it. The New York Times website had that needle thing. Do you remember that? The speedometer-looking thing, where for months the needle pointed to the left, saying Hillary Clinton had like an 80% chance of winning the election. So on November 8th, 2016, I couldn't wait to
2: Pokemon go to the polls.
3: And after voting, I sat at my computer and watched that needle thing swing all the way to the right.
1: Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear.
3: A few months later, I watched the inauguration in 19th century American Lit class. There's what you're taught, in what you see with your own eyes. There's America, the imperfect union, struggling and striving and ultimately succeeding in making itself more perfect. And then there's border patrol agents, ripping infants from their mother's arms. There's white supremacists marching on Charlottesville. And there's the man who proudly called Mexicans rapists and criminals, presiding over all of it. Congratulations, Mr. President. Did this all just start in 2016, or was I not paying attention to the fact that Obama deported more people than any previous president, and carried out secret drone assassinations in countries we weren't at war with, and that, despite his symbolic victory, the police continued to murder black people with impunity? I wish I'd talked to my mom about all this, about her views on America before and after she came here instead of calling her brainwashed and arguing with her about Taiwan, Hong Kong, the election, I would have realized that while our paths couldn't be more different, the conclusions we came to were equally surprising. My mom moved to Beijing for college at the beginning of the 80s and stayed there for the duration of the decade. The 80s are to China what the 60s were to the West an explosion of political and cultural activity, a flowering of youthful energy, a sense that the world was for the taking and could be reshaped into whatever we wanted it to be.
2: Disco become very popular, so we kind of dance disco.
3: Wait, mom, you dance to disco?
2: Oh, everyone. Young people. <laughs> yeah.
3: Were there like clubs that you would, like disco clubs?
2: No, no, no. People just dance, you know.
3: The West and America weren't China's mortal enemies anymore. They were the land of exciting new foreign books and music and movies and TV. They were cool.
2: There was a movie, it's from America, I think it's called A Man from Atlantic Ocean.
3: Man from Atlantis?
2: Yeah, Atlantic Ocean, I think.
1: The Man from Atlantis. Mark Harris is an alien in the world we know. His own world is miles under the surface of the ocean. I looked it
3: up. Man from Atlantis is a sci-fi show that aired for a single season on NBC in the late 70s and was then promptly canceled. It's basically Aquaman, the last citizen of Atlantis washes up on a beach and has incredible swimming and underwater breathing abilities. And due to bizarre stroke of luck or whatever you wanna call it, it was the first American TV show to be broadcast in China in 1979. And all apologies to my mom, but it looks absolutely terrible.
1: The Man from Atlantis, starring Patrick Duffy and Belinda Montgomery.
3: Between disco dancing and TV watching, my mom still had college classes to attend, including her mandatory politics class. It was the same content as before. According to her teachers, the party was the savior of the Chinese people. America was an evil capitalist empire that oppressed China. But to my mom in her early 20s, the message just wasn't as convincing. Because
2: you have witnessed the changes of the world, and you are older too. Then you can think independently, so you have your own opinions.
3: In China, you were rich if you owned four objects. A sewing machine, a watch, a bicycle, and a radio. But her classmates who had gone to the U.S. described a country where there weren't just sewing machines, but department stores filled with dozens of brands of every type of clothing. There weren't just analog watches, but digital ones that could light up and act as stopwatches and alarms. There weren't just bicycles, but streets crowded with cars. And there weren't just radios, but color TVs in every home.
2: And that's why so many people now, they just feel, oh, China actually is not that strong and China is poor and all of the enemies, thought they live in the hell and they live in the fire, live in the poverty, actually they live a much better life.
3: After my parents got married, They moved into what my mom describes as a one-room shack on the outskirts of Beijing. They bundled up and burned coal to stay warm during the winter, cooked on a shared kerosene grill, and showered only once a week at their workplace, if that. My mom worked at a government agency, and my dad was an engineer at a car factory, where apparently he just sit in the break room and smoke cigarettes all day. When they imagined their futures, they saw an endless procession of the same exact day, again, and again, and again. But off to the side was an escape route, a dream.
2: You feel that, oh, America is such a good place. You have such admire about this place and these people. You just want to go there. It's your dream, just like a lot of immigrants. They just do everything they could to get to the place they want to.
3: In the spring of 1989, my parents got accepted to a PhD program at the University of Oklahoma. They rented an apartment with running water, bought their own car, and ate as much as they wanted at Old Country Buffet. Their dream had come true. But there was what she heard about America from her classmates, the America of excitement and abundance she'd built up in her imagination from the other side of the Pacific, and what she saw with her own eyes.
2: You might have a honeymoon for a month or so, However, you still have to get into reality. The reality is that you need to survive because you are poor. In China, I didn't feel that I'm poor. Even though my money is very, my salary is very low, I didn't feel I'm poor.
3: It's like the old joke. Everyone is equal under communism because everyone is equally poor. Despite their relative material abundance, my mom felt poor for the first time. In America.
2: This Country is very cruel in the way that you don't have protection and you don't have safety nest. If you don't have work, then you lose everything because everything tied to your work. If you don't have work, then you lose your medical benefits. Now, if you don't have your paycheck, then you are not able to pay a mortgage. If you are not able to pay your mortgage, then you have no place to live. That's it.
3: I love the way my mom puts it. America is a cruel country. She didn't learn this from reading about spectacular acts of racist cruelty in the New York Times. She just went to the DMV.
2: We went to the vehicle registration, and the lady who was there couldn't spell daddy's name right.
3: My dad's name is Jer Lee. Z-H-I-L-I, but even with my name, Bowen, B as in boy, O-E-N, I get the same thing. One time at a Starbucks in the south side of Pittsburgh, the barista spelled my name as, I swear to God, Beller.
2: Daddy asked her to crack it
3: and the DMV lady said, sure, just give me five bucks. My mom raised a ruckus, telling the DMV lady that it was her fault for misspelling my dad's name. In the end, they didn't have to pay the five dollars. My mom would stick up for herself and fight whatever indignities came her way, but still, it was impossible to avoid.
2: They don't have patience to talk to you. They don't really have to say that in front of your face. However, their expression, you can tell. You can, you can feel it. You can tell.
3: These thousand paper cuts of casual racism added up. I saw it with my own eyes, people talking to my parents as if they were children, just because of the way they looked and talked. So after I witnessed the 2016 election, and after the years of discrimination my mom faced, we both came to the same crossroads. We could hold on to the America of abundance and ideals, or see America for what it really was, a nation of precarity, and racism, and cruelty. And ultimately, we made the same choice. But we still don't see eye to eye in China. When my mom came to a similar crossroads about her own homeland, she chose to believe in the party. She still thinks Mao is a good leader, and she admires Xi Jinping today. Ten years ago, I'd have told you that my mom is just brainwashed by the Communist Party, and that she continues to live under its spell, even on the opposite side of the earth. Today, I realize that there's no such thing as brainwashing, that our beliefs aren't implanted in us by sinister forces in an instant. We just live our lives. (laughs) So were there ever moments then where you felt like, oh, maybe I've been brainwashed?
2: I never feel I'm brainwashed. Yeah. I think it's just a kind of a illusion, delusion, then reflection, realization, that kind of a process.
3: By calling her brainwashed, I told my mom I didn't care that she witnessed the insanity of the Cultural Revolution that she danced to disco in Beijing, that she felt the abject terror of being an immigrant in America. I essentially told her that her beliefs weren't hers, weren't real, and weren't the result of her own experiences. By calling her brainwashed, I told my mom that I was better than her, which I'm ashamed to admit today. Did you feel like I was brainwashed or that I am brainwashed? I won't
2: say you are brainwashed, but I think your mind has been shaped by what you heard what you have observed, because you only heard one-sided story. That's what you heard in here. That's different from what you hear in China or other parts of the world.
3: So as for me, I refuse to use the term brainwash, and I've given up on arguing about politics with my mom or anyone. It's a pointless term and a pointless exercise. Instead of asking myself, how can I convince my mom she's wrong? I've been asking, what can I learn from her? I recommend it. And then after we finished the interview, my mom showed me a bunch of clothes she bought for me.
0: Okay,
2: go our. Yeah.
1: This story was written and produced for A Better Life by Bowen Wong. It was mixed and mastered by our technical director, Jocelyn Gonzalez. Quincy Sewersmith is our managing editor. Alejandro Salazar-Dyer is our director of marketing. And Isabella Josha is our intern. The executive producer of Feeding Two Worlds is John Rudolph. Our theme music and original score are by Farid Sajan. Additional music by Yuvgiri Barduza and Yehetzel Rath. You can find information about her music in our episode notes. Special thanks to James Wu, Julia Shu, and Ken Ikeda of Self Evident for their early editorial support and for introducing us to Bowen and connecting us to this story. Immigrants in a Divided Country is a multimedia online magazine series by Feeding to Worlds that explores the current political landscape from the perspective of immigrants. You can find links to additional stories in the series in our episode notes. To listen to earlier episodes of A Better Life, visit abetterlifepodcast.com. That's a betterlifepodcast.com. I'm Virginia Lora, editorial fellow with Feed Into Worlds. Thank you for listening. A Better Life and Feed Into Worlds are supported by the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation the David and Catherine Moore Family Foundation, the Ralph E. Ogden Foundation, an anonymous donor and readers and listeners like you. Support our work that brings immigrant voices and award-winning journalism to public radio, podcasts, and digital news sites. Make a tax-deductible contribution today at abetterlifepodcast.com. That's abetterlifepodcast.com.